Let us pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. May it be a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. And may your Holy Spirit tutor us in your ways this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Wherever you are, whoever you're with, wherever you've come from, good morning. Welcome to Park Street Church Online. This week, the New York Times ran an op-ed piece by Esau Macaulay, a New Testament professor at Wheaton College. He wrote that the absence of the church in the public square, the literal emptying out of the church, functions as a symbol of our trust that God can meet us regardless of our location. And not only is that a symbol of our reality today, but it's also what the world needs. Stay home. No church publicly. St. Peter's Square in Rome is vacant, and the Pope prays in cyberspace. The Worldwide Church of the Latter-day Saints has shut down their global operations, and our missionaries from Park Street Church are wrestling with this new reality. Carolyn Cummings in Nairobi, Kenya, wrote that she is struggling to deal with the missionaries that she's in charge of with their travel plans at the current time. She's worried about a slum, the Kibera slum, over a million people who cannot practice social distancing. Grace and Eugene, serving in East Asia, have found that this created a new opportunity for a Muslim people group that they are working with to provide free hand sanitizers and face masks, and that these are apparently being accepted openly and with appreciation. Grace and Damien Long, serving in East Asia, in Central Asia, tell us of their own family hunkering down during this time, and how Glorianne, well, she's actually quite happy that they're all together as a family and hopes that they can remain so for a long, some time longer. I had an email this week from a member of Park Street who is a leader of a house church in China. And he was writing that they've been online for weeks, if not months. And they've been praying together online, training. They've been serving one another, providing financially for those in distress. And yes, even there, they are praying for us this morning, praying for you in your homes here in, across the city, across the state. But what does it mean for us when we are virtual to be gathered virtually? What does it mean for us in our identity and as our community to belong to Christ? Our social life has been disrupted. We are working at home, perhaps remote access, or we've been enforced in to have our vacations, or perhaps our business is beginning to dry up. Maybe we have the kids at home doing homeschooling, but we're really not a homeschooling family. Or our elderly parents are shut away in nursing homes and we can't get access to them. Or those who are closest and dearest to us who have particular special needs 
are no longer able to get the regular health services that they require. Yes, we wash our hands, we practice social distancing, we want to flatten the curve, but what does it mean for us to belong at such a time as this? It's as though there's a house with the roof that has been torn off, the windows have been blown out, and the walls have collapsed, and all's left, all's left exposed to the elements are the bedrock, the foundations. So what does it mean when everything's stripped away and all that's left is the bedrock, all that's left are the foundations, all that's left are the essentials? What at this time are the essentials for us in a pandemic? Well, I think our passage this morning from Mark's Gospel helps us understand four essentials for a pandemic. The first is to love God. The second is to love our neighbor. The third is to watch out for false discipleship. And the fourth is to grow as true disciples. So if you do have a Bible in front of you or able to get one, I encourage you to open it now as we look together at Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, starting with verse 28. Love God. One of the teachers of the law heard, came and heard them debating, and he noticed, noticing that Jesus answered well, gave a good answer, said, of all the, all the commandments, what, what is the most important? The most important of all, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. It's intriguing in Mark's Gospel that up until this point, the teachers of the law have appeared as a group. Yet here, we find an individual teacher of the law. Up until this point in the Gospel narrative, they have been hostile and combative. Yet here, we find one who is irenic and conciliatory. Up until this point, we have found the teachers of the law who have been quibbling over the finer points of the law. They even sliced it and diced it so much that they came up with 613 commandments, 365 positive for every day of the year, and 248 negative, as if they were able to produce some kind of Cliff Notes version of the Torah to be able to check that box. And yet here, here we have a scribe who doesn't address Jesus by a title, he launches right in. And the Greek itself indicates that his question is perhaps more probing than their other questions. What supersedes all commandments? And what is mandatory? What is universal on all people at all times? It had been a hot-button issue for several decades, perhaps longer before Christ came. Rabbi Hillel said, whatever you do not want your neighbor to do to you, do not do to them. It kind of sounds like Confucius, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. But Christ here quotes directly from the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
with all your mind and with all your strength. The rabbis, when they interpreted this, they looked at it in terms of the heart being the core of the person. They looked at it in terms of the soul of being the entire person, the inclinations of someone, the emotions of someone, and their strength, their uh, possessions, and so forth. But when Jesus quotes it, we must remember the context. It's the context to God's people. And when he says here, he doesn't just mean listen up, or turn up your hearing aids, those who have hearing aids, or don't be so distracted with your cell phones, those on their cell phones. He's saying here, which really means submit. It means obey, follow this. The Lord our God, this is the God of Israel, the God of creation, the God of redemption. He is our Lord. But not only is he our Lord, the God of Israel, he is the Lord of all the nations. He is the Lord of all the peoples. And this Lord is the one who loves them the most and who is calling them the most to love him in return, to love him with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul and your strength. There is no other God. This was the consistent message of the Old Testament. We find it in the prophet Isaiah 45, 5 and 7, where he says, I am the Lord, there is no other. Apart from me, there is no other God. I form light, I create darkness. I bring prosperity, I create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Love the Lord your God. The rabbis put the accent on love. Even though the fear of the Lord was the beginning of wisdom, they put the accent on love. And yet Jesus adds to the Shema the mind. He says, love the Lord your God with all your mind. As though he's saying your cognitive, your intellectual attributes and abilities, that the whole person, he, he claims the whole person, every part of them, every part of you and I. He claims it all, the seat of the emotions, the will, every part of us, that we are exquisitely and complexly designed, that we are his creation in the image of God, and yet we are broken people. We are unable to love him as he requires. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? St. Augustine said that we are incurved, that our desires are disordered, that we are turned in on ourselves self-absorbed, that one part is out of joint. There are different pieces of our very personality that are yet, have yet to be transformed into the image of God, the image of Christ in our lives. In the New Testament, we read that in Ephesians 4:18 that they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Our hearts, our minds, our emotions, our will, it's all connected, and he is claiming everything in our lives, that we are to love him with all that we have, without reserve, without holding back, as though there's a rocket being launched from earth to heaven on all, all powers, all thrusters, all going towards the worship and the love of the one who loves us the most. This 
This is the essential thing. This supersedes it all. This is mandatory on all men and women, all boys and girls, all seniors, all married people, all, all single people. This is what God has essentially required of his creation. So this is what we must begin with during a pandemic. But there is more. He says in verse 30 to 32, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. What you have said is right. God is one and there is no other. To love him with all your heart, understanding, and strength is more important, is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Unlike other nations, the Israelites were called to love each other from the heart. Jesus quotes from Leviticus 19:18, and it's an important passage that shows the nature of their social and spiritual life. Under the Levitical code, under the covenant, they were to love one another from the heart. They were not to have grudges from the heart. They were not to seek vengeance from the heart. They were to love one another. Even they were to love aliens and strangers in their midst, those of different races, of different ethnicities and backgrounds. It was a radical thing then in the ancient world, and it is no less radical today. And so Jesus brings together Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 6. Leviticus 19, we might say, is the second table of the law, the second half of the Ten Commandments. And last week we looked at the rich young ruler, who in many ways had kept, perhaps, the second half of the law. But he was what the first century Christian Philo would call man, a man of half virtue, someone who just kept half of the law of love to neighbor, but did not have that love for God. And so what Jesus requires is whole virtue, a complete virtue of love for God expressed in love for our neighbor, care for our neighbor. What matters most to Jesus is this heartfelt, complete love for their maker. And ritualism and ceremony and religion is not a substitute for that. Neither is humanism because it fails to appreciate the creator and the redeemer of the world. And neither is a, a theism that is vague and disembodied view of God. No, here we have Jesus saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. Whoever claims to love God but hates their brother or their sister is a liar, John says in 1 John 4.20. For whoever hates his brother and sister that they've seen cannot love God who they have not seen. And quite remarkably, at the end of this little interaction, we see the teacher of the law in a stunning response. Well said, teacher. What you have said is right. He's agreeing. He's agreeing with great David's greatest son, Yahweh's son himself, the vineyard owner's own son. He's agreeing with him in the very spot where the temple is engaging in all its religion, all its paraphernalia, all its ceremonies. He's saying, yes, it's out of kilter. It's off 
base. This is the epicenter. This is the gravitational center of life with God. To love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. To hold nothing back extravagantly to give out all for others, to give out all to their maker themselves. This is the heart. And then Jesus turns to the third essential, watch out. Verse 38 to 40, watch out for false discipleship. As Jesus taught, he said, watch out. Watch out for the teachers of the law who like to walk around in their long flowing robes, kind of like I have a long flowing robe today. They like to walk around in their long flowing robes and to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have the most important seats in the synagogues and the honored positions in the banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men, such men will face a severe judgment. Here we see the good shepherd. He's warning the sheep. He's already warned them in Matthew 7, watch out for wolves in sheep's clothing. By their fruit you will know them. He's already warned the disciples in Mark 8, verse 15, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and the Herodians of hypocrisy and worldliness. And in the next chapter, he warns them, watch out in chapter 13, verse 5, watch out for anyone who would deceive you. And yet here, the good shepherd is warning them of the teachers of the law, the very people who were entrusted with the role of educating, of tutoring, of instructing God's holy people, this holy priesthood. And why? Because Jesus sees through the veneer of spirituality. He sees through the facade of what's really going on in their lives, and he identifies five separate ways in which they have a false model of discipleship. First, they're attention seekers. They like to walk around in long flowing robes. The custom was a shorter cloak that men and women would have, but that wasn't sufficient for them. They needed something more, something greater that would attract more attention. Secondly, they wanted public acknowledgement, the greeting in the marketplace. If you were a farmer or a carpenter or a stonemason in the marketplace in Jerusalem, and the teacher of the law would come past in their flowing robes, you would be expected to raise, to rise up, to stand in honor of this dignified individual. Thirdly, they wanted status. They wanted it in the synagogue, the very place that was to be about the Torah, the very place that was to be about Yahweh himself, they wanted the most important seat, the seat, that the bench that was flipped around to face the congregation. They wanted the most honored position in the banquets. In an agricultural community, a traditional society, a banquet was an opportunity for people to gather together, a sort of climax of the, the annual calendar, a time of festivity, of exchanging good words to one another and celebrating. But for the teachers of the law, this was their opportunity to steal the limelight, to be the center of occasion, to make this about them, not about others, not about the community. The fourth false area of their discipleship was manipulation. 
They preyed on widows. They devoured widows' houses. Isaiah said as much in Isaiah 10, verse 2, was nothing new. Those who had them in esteem were ones that they took advantage of. They were looking for financial gain. It was a smokescreen of all their spirituality. I remember a few years ago, as I was a pastor in Virginia, visiting a widow, an elderly widow, whose husband has passed away some years prior to that. And as I went to her home and we sat down and had tea and cookies, we were talking about, I can't remember what it was now, but it wasn't a very intense or earnest discussion. And we were interrupted by some people who knocked at her door and came into her house, several people. And all of a sudden I realized that the agenda or the topic of discussion had changed. No longer were we exchanging pleasantries or talking about scripture or sharing what was going on in, in the life of the parish. The agenda suddenly became her assets, her finances, her money. And then I realized what was going on. The vultures had arrived. The hyenas had been let in. And she was a prey. She was vulnerable to them. Well, the fifth area of their false discipleship was for a show they make lengthy prayers. Jesus had warned against such hypocrisy in the Beatitudes. In Matthew 5, 5, he said, when you pray, do not pray like the Pharisees who like to, make, to stand in the, in the marketplaces, in the, in the synagogues, to make lengthy prayers, to be seen by people. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward in full. The problem with the teachers of the law was not that they did not know Torah. The problem was not that they did not understand the law. The problem was not that they did not wrestle and grapple with theology. No. The problem was not that they did not know their Bibles. The problem was they did not apply it. They did not live it. This was not their ordinary experience. They were like the teacher of the law in Luke 10 who comes to Christ and says, who is my neighbor seeking to justify himself? They need to justify themselves. They need to rationalize themselves. Who is my neighbor? And then Christ gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. Not only is it teaching to help the, the, those who are most vulnerable and weakest, those who are most insecure. Not only is it teaching that, but it's also teaching go and do likewise, go and show mercy, go and do likewise to the Samaritan, to love your neighbor, the Samaritan neighbor. John Bunyan, the 17th century author of Pilgrim's Progress, a well-known Christian classic, the journey on the road, if you will, from this earthly Jerusalem to the heavenly Jerusalem. He talks about one particular character, Mr. Money Love, Mr. Money Love, who has made a virtue out of using religion to get the good things of this life. And Jesus says, the consequence of all this is that they will face the sternest judgment, severest judgment. In our passage today, we were reading about great David's greatest son. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. 
And so the threat here is that this David, this great David's greatest son, is not simply a human Messiah. He is Yahweh's son himself. He is the vineyard owner's son come from heaven to earth. And the danger that the teachers of the law face is that they too may have their necks under the foot, under the boot of the king of kings, that those who teach will face a stricter judgment. The original language has abundant judgment, and even greater, more severe judgments than those who are hypocrites or blasphemers. So we've seen three essentials in a pandemic, to love God, to love your neighbor, to watch out for false discipleship, but finally, to grow in true discipleship. Verse 41 to 44, as Jesus sat down opposite the place where they put the offerings, he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. And then there was a poor widow who put in two very small copper coins worth a fraction of a penny. Calling the disciples to him, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. They put in out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all that she had to live on. Picture the scene. You're in the temple courts. The teachers of the law are sort of floating around in their long gowns. The crowd is milling around, mindlessly going through the motions, putting in their money, and the wealthy are throwing in their cash in these 12 trumpet-like containers, receptacles in the temple, and not really noticed by anyone, a single poor widow. But Jesus notices, and he seizes the moment. This is a teaching opportunity. This is exhibit A. This is showcasing discipleship, real, true discipleship. And he says, truly, I say to you, what is that truth? Truly, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. They put in out of their wealth. She, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. How could that be true? Everything about this woman was less. She had less money. The money she put in was a 64th of a denarius. A denarius was one day's wage. She put in less money. She had less security. She had less status. She had less power. Everything about this poor widow was less. But in God's economy, it was more. In God's economy, she had more sacrifice. She had more faith. She had more love. She had more generosity of spirit. Because in God's economy, what matters is not the value of the gift, but its cost. What matters is not its value, but its cost. So it's quite possible to put in great amounts, great amounts of financial resources, and yet for it to cost very little. And conversely, it's quite possible to put in such a small amount of value that it costs everything. And that is so precious, so precious in God's sight. 
They put in from that surplus. She put in everything she had. So where does this leave us? These four essentials of loving God, of loving our neighbor, of watching out for false discipleship, and of growing in true discipleship, a discipleship that Jesus had said in Mark 8, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me, for whoever saves his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my name and the gospel's sake will find it. She had given up her life. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. She was following in that model. But what does it mean for us today, and how can we respond to this? The disciples were in the temple with their master. They were on the way. They were on the way to Jerusalem. They were on the way to the cross behind their master, behind great David's greatest son. And in a similar way, we are also on the way. We're on a journey, this physical journey, a journey in which our landscape is changing rapidly each day. Borders of countries are closed. Hospitals are beginning to get overwhelmed. Universities have sent their students home. Schools are closed. Businesses have stopped. The landscape is changing rapidly and perhaps will continue to change in so many different ways. And yet this is an opportunity for us on the way. It's an opportunity for us to remember three things, that we belong to each other. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we belong to one another. It's an opportunity, too, that we belong to the communion of saints, to those who have run the race before us. In Hebrews 11, we read of many saints who have run through many challenging times. I think of Moses in Hebrews 11:27, who endured seeing him who was invisible. We belong to each other. We belong to the communion of saints, but we also belong to our Heavenly Father, we say often in our services that I am not my own. I belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior. And this is an opportunity for us to remember our identity, our core identity, so that we can contribute at such a time as this. In this opportunity, we can contribute and engage to the wider life of our community. I was watching the news this week and saw Yo-Yo Ma, a famous cellist, have hashtag songs of comfort. It was very moving. Also of some Italian residents in an apartment complex who began, perhaps you saw it, to sing to one another using their gifts as only Italians could do. And there are already so many different ways that people are contributing at such a time as this, at this opportunity to contribute, to use whatever gifts and talents you may have to share with others in your community and particularly for those who are lonely and are fearful and afraid. We're on the way, and this creates an opportunity for us. But we're also on the way in another sense, in another journey, an inner journey, on the way through Lent, a period in which we reflect on our lives, a period in which we repent of our sins, of our idols, of our false selves, of our projections of who we wish we were and yet we're not. This does provide an invitation, perhaps, from God in your own life 
to reflect on how do you love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength? How do you respond to the one who has loved you greatest and most and in the most deepest fashion, who elicits and longs for your love in return? How do we love him? And have we turned away from him to lesser loves? And that also provides us an opportunity to think how we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves, how we have hated our brother or sister who we have seen and cannot love God who we have seen, perhaps of a different race, perhaps of a different class, perhaps of a different nationality, perhaps of whatever perhaps it is. Are there areas that we need to repent, how we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves? And are there also areas in our lives that we must repent of our false discipleship, of projecting a certain image, of parading our spirituality on our sieve, of trumpeting our piety, of different ways, even to ourselves. We've not been honest with ourselves about the nature of our own spiritual walk with Christ, and that we need someone to prick the bubble in our own lives to see what true discipleship is, of giving ourselves up, giving ourselves over to the maker and creator of the universe. And is this Lent also an opportunity for us to grow, an invitation from our faithful and loving Savior to grow ever deeper in that experience? It was Martin Luther, the German reformer in the 1500s, himself who had lived through many convulsions, many upheavals across Europe. He was asked, should a Christian leave when the plague hits their city? He was asked that question, should a Christian leave? And his own hometown was hit by the bubonic plague. And in his response, he said many things, but one of them was, service to God indeed is service to your neighbor. And he recognized that God would allow and permit such convulsions to happen, perhaps to teach and to chasten his people so that their faith might not always be in their ears or hover on their lips but have its true place deep in their hearts. Because Martin Luther knew that spiritual growth and development and maturity happened in the context of God sovereignly working in the world, but also on the inner life, the inner road, a road of prayer, a road of meditation on the scriptures, but also a road of inner conflict, of wrestling, of trials of the soul and the spirit, As he said, one thing is certain, that each person must utterly despair of their own abilities before they are prepared to receive the grace of Christ. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, said something similar, talking about the grace of Christ in chapter 12. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I boast of my weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so, brothers and sisters, wherever you are today, whatever you're entering into this coming week, Hold on to the grace of Christ. Hold on to your faithful Savior. He has been faithful in the past. 
He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has promised, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He has promised. He has promised his grace, his mercy, his provision for his people in desperate times. And we've seen it throughout Scripture. We saw it in Genesis 26 with Abraham's family and family. We saw it in Exodus 1 and 2 for 400 years in slavery. We saw it in 70 years in exile in Babylon and Daniel. He has been faithful to his people in the past, and not one of his promises has ever failed. Brothers and sisters, let us call on the Lord for his grace and his mercy in the midst of our weaknesses and our trials and we will find him faithful. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, our faithful Savior, our good shepherd, that you warn us of the dangers on the way. And Lord, through through the fire we will not be burned. Through the waters you will walk with us. Lord, you have been faithful in the past to your people. And we call on you today. We cry out to you, be our Emmanuel, and that we too may comfort those who are afflicted and bring your word and your love extravagantly, generously, and radically as this poor widow did. O Lord, have mercy on us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.